The meeting was exceptional, even if the news in January of 1885 was not that great. It was a conference of leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, living in the Arizona Territory. In attendance was John Taylor, the current president of the church, considered to be a prophet to his people. Taylor had been a member since converting in 1836 while living in Canada, and had actually been in the room when Joseph Smith was killed in 1844. But now, just over four decades later, here he was in the wilds of the American Southwest, listening as the presidents of the four Arizona stakes, large geographic areas that were split up into multiple congregation or wards, detailed the situation on the ground to him. In just a little over two years after this meeting, Taylor would be dead, breathing his last breath while living in hiding in Kaysville, Utah. The reason for his death in exile was the same as his meeting in Arizona. His church was the subject of intense persecution, and finding a safe haven for the faithful was of the utmost concern. So it was in 1885 that the prophet of the Mormon faith embraced the idea that maybe, just maybe, they needed to abandon Arizona altogether. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 82, The Shotgun and Rope. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we rode the honeymoon trail and otherwise followed the successful Mormon settlements in the White Mountains and along the Colorado Plateau. Now, I had originally thought that talking about the Mormon colonies would only occupy one, maybe two episodes at the most. But here we are, as it has ballooned to four full episodes to cover everything I wanted to talk about. To be fair, though, that seems to be the story of this entire podcast, with topics often rapidly spiraling outward from their original target length. As I remarked to a friend just the other day, I can't tell if I'm doing something wrong or incredibly right. But seeing as people are still listening, I think it's best that I just keep moving forward. And in this case, moving forward means turning an eye toward where the ever-expanding Mormons landed next in Arizona. So far, with the exception being the plug I gave my hometown of Mesa, we've been talking exclusively about the settlements these pioneers made in the northern part of the state. Though these did become Mormon strongholds for generations, I want to make sure I do similar justice to the ones that made it even further south, into what once had been known as the Gadsden Purchase. About three episodes back, I mentioned how one Daniel W. Jones had petitioned Tom Jeffords for the opportunity to preach to the Chiricahua Apache in the latter half of 1875. I did that as a good introduction to the topic for our short mini-series, but now I want to circle back around and talk about why Jones was in the area in the first place. Also, I figure I should really give you a brief sketch of the man since I mentioned him numerous times and he did found my hometown. Born in Missouri in 1830, Jones had been orphaned by the age of 12. Growing up with nothing better to do, he joined as a volunteer in a unit to fight in the Mexican-American War, and he would actually stay in Mexico, learning Spanish in the process, until 1850, when he joined an expedition leaving for California. 
luck, whether good or bad, had Jones along the Green River later in 1850 when his pistol accidentally went off in his holster, piercing through his groin and thigh. His companions left him to recuperate in Provo, Utah, where Jones embraced the Mormon faith because of the tender care he received from them. Due to his knowledge of Spanish, he was called by Brigham Young in the 1870s to help translate portions of the Book of Mormon into that language, and then to go preaching into Mexico. And it was on this trip down south with several companions in 1875 that Jones first laid eyes on the Salt River Valley, which he found lovely and full of promise. It's here also that he first made the acquaintance of Charles T. Hayden, who afterward was known to be on friendly terms with members of the church. While in the area, the group tried proselyting to the local Odom tribes before moving on to Tucson. When they got there, they found out that the state of Sonora was in the midst of some political troubles, so they decided to head on to El Paso, stopping along the way to preach to the Chiricahua. They would spend some time across the international border before returning home to Utah, and then Jones got on with his destiny of colonizing along the Salt River. Now, I mention this because a couple years later, another group, mainly comprised of those who had come along with Jones in 1875, followed up on the trip as part of a mission to explore the land along the border and possibly into Sonora as a place to settle. By February 1877, the group had arrived at none other than Tubac, and one of the elders of the group wrote to Brigham Young suggesting that Mormons become the latest in a long series of inhabitants of the place. Specifically, the elder wrote that Tubac was, quote, better than the north part of the territory from the fact that land is as good, if not better, the water is good and regular, and the climate more pleasant, end quote. Allow me to editorialize just a bit while reminding you that he wrote that letter at the beginning of March. So, of course, the climate seemed very pleasant. I want to tell him, just give it a couple months. But in the same letter, we find more descriptions of nearby ruins, rich mines, and abundance of game. There were plenty of people of Hispanic descent around, and the writer characterizes them as industrious, but impoverished possessing very little, but always willing to share what they had with strangers, and to being mostly illiterate. Despite this glowing report, nothing was done to follow up with settling at Tubac, mainly because the Apache were still raiding everywhere, and it was decided that the situation on the ground had to improve before risking sending farmers there. In the meantime, as we know, the Mormons began to settle in Lehigh, Mesa, and Tempe, as to the latter, the Johnson family ended up buying 80 acres from Hayden for $3,000, which helped turn Hayden's Ferry into the burgeoning town of Tempe. I will also note that McClintock relates that in 1880, Hayden and his Mormon friends took it upon themselves to establish a highway to Globe in order to have a market for all their produce. I don't have any more record of this highway, than to say that it cut through the Pinal Mountains, trying to reach the area of the Silver King Mine, what we know today as Superior. But McClintock mentions that in his day, so the 1920s, the state was trying to create a new part of this route by cutting a shelf along the side of Queen Creek, the actual creek and not the suburban Phoenix community. If that's true, then he's talking about the route of modern U.S. 60, which means the Mormons and Hayden might have had a hand in the route you drive today between Globe and Mesa. 
But let's keep heading further to the southeast and pick up on something I left hanging a few episodes ago. You might recall that I mentioned how a bunch of settlers left modern Lehigh after they found Jones's attitude toward the Amerindians a bit too enlightened for their tastes. After a short trip through a historical inaccuracy when I said they had gone to Mexico, they landed upon the San Pedro River and established St. David. Well, that's all fine and dandy, except these early settlers were hit hard with malaria, and when Apostle Erastus Snow came to the area in October 1878, it was said that he addressed a grand total of 38 individuals, most of whom had to be carried to the meeting. This really isn't surprising, as we've talked about these malarial problems before when discussing both Camp Goodwin and the original Camp Grant. It took a year's worth of draining swampy land and getting rid of beaver dams to finally get to the point where the issue could be considered conquered. In the meantime, one settler talked about how the community went into the Huachuca Mountains to find some respite, but came back down again to the area of Hereford because of heavy windstorms. Finally, though, in 1880, the town of St. David was officially laid out, with John Smith Merrill building the first house, followed the next year by an adobe schoolhouse. Now, what I find fascinating about this schoolhouse is that McClintock tells us that it was destroyed in 1887 due to an earthquake that, thankfully, happened while the students were at recess. Now, that's fascinating because he's referring to a terrible earthquake that occurred along a fault line in northern Mexico on May 3, 1887 that rated 7.2 on the Richter scale. This quake did vast amounts of damage in Mexico and southern Arizona and is said to have rung church bells as far away as Phoenix. If someone will remind me, I will dive more into that earthquake in a future episode. St. David is also noted for having what McClintock claims was the first artesian well in the territory of Arizona. For those of you, like myself, who are not entirely sure what an artesian well is, some quick googling tells us that it's a well where the water flows upward from natural pressures without the need for pumping. The town was also lucky because it was just a stone's throw away, in relative terms, from the growing boomtown of Tombstone, which meant a market of hungry miners for their farm goods, as well as contracts to build dams and mills. And this shot in the arm to the local economy worked well because, as of last time I checked, both communities were still there. But if we jump north and east, we come to the upper Gila River, where there was and is still a strong Mormon presence in Graham County. Now, the Mormons were by no means the first Americans to enter the area. As a group of farmers leaving the area of Gila Bend due to flooding taking out their irrigation canals had settled there by 1874. And it's these settlers who gave their town the name of Safford, named, of course, after Governor Anson P.K. Safford, who was touring the region at the time. One suspects that Safford was right chuffed with the honor, and that the settlers probably received a long speech about the need for public schools in return for their generosity. Mormons first came to the Gila Valley in the late 1870s, with their first expeditions just mentioning gazing upon it. But McClintock tells us that the settlement along the Gila was one of the rare instances where people weren't asked to go there by church leaders, but it happened quite organically. Because, as it turned out, a lot of people came from the White Mountains due to the Forest Dale debacle. 
For a refresher, that's what we talked about last week, where people were alternatively told that their burgeoning settlement was both on and off the White Mountain Apache Reservation. So by 1879, a group of Mormons had descended into the Gila Valley. After scouting for a suitable place, they settled at what came to be known as Smithville, but these days goes by the name of Pima, just west of Thatcher and Safford. This location was good enough that people quitting the sinking ship that was Brigham City along the Little Colorado came south to settle amongst their brethren there. I will mention here that McClintock records that these settlers soon got deep into farming the rich Gila Valley, and the fruits of their labors were once again shared in the United Order, which seems to have worked better than it had among the settlers up north. Nearby, we have the settlement of Thatcher, where the first Mormon pioneer to the area arrived on July 4, 1881. In case you were wondering, Thatcher is named after Mormon apostle Moses Thatcher, who visited the settlement in December 1882, along with the ubiquitous Erastus Snow. And because we're talking about a group of extremely religious folks, it seems only right that we take a moment to talk about a miracle. McClintock relates a story about a supposed miracle that spared a group of settlers traveling from Forest Dale down to the Gila Valley. They made one of their evening stops about 20 miles south of Fort Apache, and in the morning they arose as usual, said a group prayer, then got up and went about their way. It's only later that an Amerindian told a member of the company that he had been part of a hostile band that was in position and ready to fall on this wagon train that very morning. However, when the entire group of white eyes suddenly dropped to their knees and raised their hands in supplication, the Amerindians became spooked, convinced that some powerful medicine was being worked against them. Of course, the settlers naturally chalked this up to divine protection, while others ascribe it to serendipity. Seeing as this is a history podcast and not a theological one, I'll leave the final determination up to you. Speaking of the Amerindians, It should be noted that the Gila Valley was just to the east of the San Carlos Reservation and just south of the White Mountain Apache Reservation. And since Americans were moving into the area just as John Clum was grabbing every single Apache band he could get his mitts on, it meant that Amerindians breaking out of the reservation usually ran right through where these new settlements were. I won't bore you with these small little anecdotes about Amerindians killing this or that settler or this or that settler killing Amerindians, but just know that it did happen and was a concern until the final quote-unquote pacification quote-unquote of the Apache. While talking about the colonies along the San Pedro and the Gila River, I want to mention a letter sent to the leaders of these colonies by John Taylor and Joseph F. Smith, who was one of his counselors in the First Presidency. The letter seems to encapsulate the Mormon colonizing experience and mindset, so I want to stop and go over some of its contents. In it, the Mormon leaders encouraged their members not to scatter willy-nilly over their new land, but to make sure town sites were dutifully surveyed and doled out, that families settled on the plots, adequate protections against raids and bandits were put in place, and that proper facilities were erected for worship and for education. Streets were to be wide and accommodating, with plenty of public squares for both churches and schools, as well as parks and green spaces. The letter goes on to recommend settling on plateaus or mesas, instead of right on river bottoms to avoid malaria as much as possible. 
And once again, because we are talking about Mormons, the letter also makes it clear that the purpose of these settlements was to eventually spread the gospel down into Mexico. Now, there is a downside to the Mormon settlement along the Gila River. Namely, they diverted so much water from the river to their farms near Safford, Thatcher, and Pima that it caused crop failures for the Apache on the San Carlos Reservation, where over-eager American officials were trying to convert hunter-gatherers and raiders into farmers. Gee, I wonder if that's going to cause any problems going forward. Now, I've been talking about Mormon settlements for going on four episodes now, so I will just note that historian Howard R. Lamar mentions that after the mass immigration in the 1870s and 1880s, Mormons composed a full one-fifth of the population of Arizona. In the same breath, Lamar also remarks how the Mormon presence in the White Mountains grew to exceed that of the old Hispanic and Amerindian inhabitants to the point that Mormons were even elected to the territorial legislature. When McClintock is writing in the 1920s, he put the number of members of the church in Arizona at 25,000, which is roughly 12% of the total state population of 300,000 at the time. Okay, so I think that's all the talk I want to do when it comes to the actual settlements. But now it's time that we address the other big elephant in the room that helped drive immigration southward. That is, that most everyone we have talked about so far was a polygamist. Mormons had been practicing polygamy secretly since the 1840s, and openly since the 1850s, believing it to be a principle of the gospel restored through Joseph Smith, and that it had a scriptural basis in the biblical stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others. Now, the majority of plural marriages practiced were smaller affairs, that is, two, maybe three wives though there were many notable exceptions to this, Brigham Young being a prime example with him having somewhere between 16 and 56 wives, depending on how you define his relationships. You might remember that I mentioned that one of John D. Lee's wives took over running the eponymous ferry after his death. I said one of because it turned out that he had 19 of them. To say that the practice of men having multiple wives rub their fellow Americans the wrong way would be a gross understatement. The U.S. government, led by Republicans who grouped polygamy in the same category of societal ills as slavery, were bound and determined to stamp out either the practice or the church that supported it. The church defended the practice on scriptural and First Amendment grounds, but the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ruled against it in a trial case, and a series of legislation was passed by Congress to punish men for what they called unlawful cohabitation and to go after the church more directly. This led to widespread feelings of animosity against the church wherever they settled. To escape some of this persecution, some men went into hiding, others went on missions to foreign countries, and some went to live in remote places. I'm looking at you, Arizona. This caused a great concern for the territory's leaders as they feared the Mormons would soon gain political power by sheer force of numbers. This wasn't complete paranoia as the Mormons, obviously, had control of the Utah legislature and also had a majority in the Idaho legislature. In Wyoming, meanwhile, the Mormon vote was enough to sway who got elected as the delegate to Congress. Then we look at Arizona, where some two 
1,000 Mormons arrived in 1884 alone. In Apache County, persecution over the Mormon presence began early, as the Hispanic and other American inhabitants already living around St. John felt that these religious zealots were going to overrun them. Threats were worst against Mormon Bishop David K. Udall, and the town constable later confessed that he always watched from the shadows as Udall walked home from night meetings just to make sure no one tried to jump and kill him. A plot was even hatched to capture and castrate Mormon apostles Brigham Young Jr. and Francis M. Lyman during a visit to St. John's, which was only adverted at the last moment because one man objected to the sheer level of violence, and a rainstorm made escape from reprisals less certain. Eventually, two rival newspapers, one edited by a Mormon, the other by an anti-Mormon, set up shop in St. John's, and each took great pains to detail the heinous deeds of the other side. Just for some flavor of the times, one 1884 editorial in the anti-Mormon Apache Chief newspaper read, quote, How did Missouri and Illinois get rid of the Mormons? By the use of the shotgun and rope. The Mormon disease is a desperate one, and rope and the shotgun is the only cure. Take the needed steps Why it is yet time. Don't let them settle on any more of our lands. Don't let them stop in Apache County, end quote. And from a bit further down in the piece, quote, Nobody but outspoken, true blue anti-Mormons will hold an office in Apache County. No Mormon should be allowed to cast a vote. He has no rights and should be allowed none. Down with them. Grind out their very existence or make them comply with the laws of the people and decency, end quote. Now, they never went to these extremes, but chose another route, the courts. The U.S. government had passed the Edmonds Act in 1882, which basically made polygamy illegal, but also went after those who professed a belief in the church's doctrine, even if they had not entered into the practice. So, in the fall of 1884, the anti-Mormons contacted Territorial Supreme Court Justice Sumner Howard about the polygamists living among them. Six prominent Mormons, including Udall and William J. Flake, were indicted by a grand jury in Prescott for violating the Edmonds Act. When their trial came up, 40 people traveled the nearly 300 miles from Apache County to testify against them. There was no chance of leniency or sympathy on the part of Howard. Eight years earlier, he had presided over the court that had convicted John D. Lee for his part in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Two of the men pleaded guilty and were slapped with $500 fines and six months in the penitentiary. The other three did not take this route and were also ordered to pay $500, but were given sentences of three and a half years in a penitentiary in Detroit, Michigan. Only Udall escaped being convicted, as his second wife had gone into hiding to avoid having to testify against him, which was something that the Edmonds Act had actually made legal. He wouldn't escape for long as he was soon brought up on spurious perjury charges related to land deals around St. John's and soon also found himself sent to Detroit in 1885. And these trials were big news across the country, as the New York Times would write, quote, This is a good beginning. In no other way can the growth of polygamy in Arizona be checked. A vigorous enforcement of the new law now will probably prevent them from practicing polygamy in the territory. 
The successful treatment of the matter in Arizona should lead the authorities of Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, and Colorado to bring their polygamists before the courts without delay. End quote. And three years after these trials, Governor Conrad Zulick would be accused by the Arizona Daily Star newspaper and take a massive ding in his popularity for supposedly making a deal with the Mormon Church to not persecute members in exchange for their votes. So you see, in January 1887, Zulick had recommended to the 14th Territorial Legislature that Arizona should repeal a test oath law that had been passed in 1885 where voters had to avow that they were not polygamists, nor did they belong to any organization that practiced polygamy. The whole thing had been set up, obviously, to disenfranchise the Mormons. Zulik managed to get the legislature to repeal it with a very simple argument that, quote, a man may be an advocate of bigamy or polygamy, or belong to the church that so believes, but until he puts forth his belief in practice, he has offended no law. Legislation should control actions, not opinions, end quote. It's a very valid point if you think about it. But in the heat of politics, there is often very little critical thinking. Railing against Zulik and his perceived alliance with the church, the star claimed that the Mormons held the balance of power between the political parties, and that at the next election, the major issue would be whether the state or the church controlled Arizona. While that is a little hyperbolic, there was some reason to expect a collusion was happening. In 1887, the presiding bishop of the church in Salt Lake wrote to members in Arizona and told them to support the Phoenix Gazette, which was a newspaper that was friendly to the church interests. The fact that the paper happened to be owned by Zulik and his subordinates suggests that some quid pro quo might have been going on. However, the anti-Mormon, anti-polygamy fever had reached its height in 1885 with Udall's conviction, and then suddenly dropped off. There were several reasons for this. First was that Zulik had been appointed by Grover Cleveland, a Democrat who had a vested interest in making sure the Mormons, who tended to lean Democrat, got the chance to vote. Most Mormons in Arizona were allowed to vote uncontested in 1886, and we already saw that Zulik repealed the major legal obstacle against them the following year. Helping things slightly was also the fact that under new directions from Salt Lake, the Mormon population in Arizona sought to split its votes more evenly between Republicans and Democrats, thus reducing the fear of the big bad Mormon voting bloc throwing an election this way or that way. But a major reason for the downtick in persecution is that, quite simply, the anti-Mormons felt they had won. The persecution had blunted Mormon immigration into the territory, while those five prominent Mormon leaders being thrown into jail had caused other polygamists to flee. In fact, as their position in Arizona looked more and more precarious, church leaders began thinking about looking elsewhere to settle. And that brings us back to where we began in January 1885, when John Taylor, along with five of the twelve apostles and other high church officials, visited Arizona settlements to consult with local leaders about conditions there. And while in the state, McClintock says it was in St. David, while another source claims it was along the Little Colorado River, Taylor encouraged families to emigrate to Mexico where persecution was much less likely. Now, the church had a presence in Mexico since 1879 and had been a dream of Brigham Young's before his death. 
But on this trip, Taylor actually crossed the border to speak with local governors in Sonora and Chihuahua about the possibility of Mormons settling in the area. And just a few months later, the first few Company of Mormon families began the migration south, helping to found the first colonies in Mexico. Since this is a history of Arizona and not Mexico, I won't get too lost into much of this, but I want to give a special shout-out to Colonia Juarez, founded in 1886 in the state of Chihuahua. Not to be confused with Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Colonia Juarez sits in a pleasant little valley along the Piedras Verdes River, which is about 40 miles almost directly south of Janos, the old Presidio site we talked about so much during the Spanish era. The reason I'm highlighting Colonia Juarez is because I've actually had the pleasure of going there and happen to know that one of my listeners hails from there. You know who you are, and consider this a little thank you for listening. Like I said, after the end of 1885, persecution of Mormons really fell away as the anti-Mormon party felt they had achieved victory. In fact, in July 1886, we find a letter claiming, quote, Polygamy or unlawful cohabitation is not practiced by the Mormon residents of the territory. End quote. Now, that's undoubtedly a gross over-exaggeration, but it does show that tempers had cooled. As one source also puts it, the sudden die-off of persecution also shows that maybe the flare-up was less about polygamy itself and more about control of land and consolidation of political power. In fact, Udall, in his later years, is said to have valued his friendship with Lorenzo Hubble, once the leading member of the anti-Mormon faction in St. John's. Though things in Arizona settled down, the federal government was still intensely hostile, so the church abandoned polygamy in 1890. First, just really in the United States, but later in the 1900s as part of an accepted doctrine for the whole church around the world. Not everyone went along with this change, as anyone who knows anything about Colorado City can attest to, but that's a different story for another time. For now, I'm going to bring our Mormon mini-series to a close and sign off for this week. But in doing so, it's to prepare to start a whole new mini-series. Because, you see, the time is now right to talk about one of Arizona's biggest historical set pieces, something that even if you knew nothing about Arizona history before, you probably were at least aware of. That's right. Join me next week as we take a deep dive into the build-up to a famous incident involving a frontier lawman named Wyatt Earp in a place called Tombstone. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.